Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Caitlin, and my favorite romantic couple is Buttercup and Wesley. <laughs> we were talking about this before, and we realized that nobody would recognize any of ours. So, I'm taking the easy one, Buttercup and Wesley, from The Princess Bride. I'm also Caitlin, and my favorite romantic couple right now is Jester and Ford. We're friends if you know who they are. I'm Aaliyah Everting, and I just love Remus and Nymphadora, Lupin and Tonks from Harry Potter. I'm Cameron, and I am a fan of Raynor and Kerrigan of StarCraft II fame. We're an interesting bunch. <laughs> All right. So um, if you didn't notice, and if this shoots our credibility, I don't know how you're going to take the rest of this episode, but we're talking about romance arcs and sexual tension in books and how to do it the right way. This week, as you may have noticed, we have special guest Caitlin McFarland. I'm Caitlin McFarland. I'm the author of the Dragon Sworn trilogy, Soul of Smoke, Shadow of Flame, and Truth of Embers. I don't know if there's anything super special about me to introduce. <laughs> I write books, and I have three daughters and a husband. And <laughs> yeah, that's my life. My books are about like dragon shifters, but I don't think that they're typical dragon shifter romances because they're not, to me, they aren't really urban fantasy. They're kind of like a high fantasy, contemporary high fantasy romance is how I'd qualify them. And I didn't actually realize I was writing romance novels because I kind of modeled it on, oh, this is what I see in young adult, but I want to write about people who are a little older but then when my agent went around and started submitting it, they were like, no, there's too much romance in this for adult fantasy. So then I was like, okay, I guess I'm a romance writer. But I love romance. I've spent 20 years of my life reading romance, and I'm only 33, so that's a lot of my life. So someone here knows what we're talking about. A couple of months ago, we tried to do a romance arcs episode, and it just failed miserably. <laughs> we ended up talking about just character arcs, which, you know, is related. It's very much related. It is. Yeah. Characters are the foundation of a good romance. So one of the big draws to YA, I think, I mean, YA has a lot of female readers. And so I think a lot of people do read them for the romance. Mm -hmm. Oh, I read them for the romance. But I also think that in, in those books, they, they draw both types of readers because you also have like really plot heavy books, but you tend to have both romance and Right. Well, I think that the classification of romance readers as a bunch of middle-aged women is kind of unfair. People kind of look down on people who read romance because there's, it is seen as something not quite as intricate or plot heavy or whatever. A lot of romance readers are very intelligent women who do like intricate plots. And I think that's why a lot of us are drawn to very good, I'll say very good YA. So what are the tools in writing good romantic tension? We already talked about, I mean, characters. That's the first thing you start with, right? Yes. Characters are foundational. For me specifically, if romance is going to be a big deal in your book, if you're just going to have a very subtle romance, I don't think this matters as much. But if romance is going to be a big deal in your book, you have to show why the male main character and the female main character or the main character and their love interest, whoever that is, why they need each other. For example, there's a book called Salvaged by Jay Crownover. And I'm sorry, it's not rated PG. So nobody who listens to this podcast can read it. <laughs> but, um, in this book, when the male and the female main characters are introduced, the guy recognizes in her this loneliness because he was raised in the foster care system and he bounced around a lot and she was raised by an abusive father who kept her very isolated. And so they immediately recognize that loneliness in each other. And that does a really good job of making me be like, fix each other, heal yourselves through love. 
And that's kind of what good romance is all about. You want people to be happy. Well, and also to feel like it's almost meant to be sometimes. Like, it's really cool to see. And not everybody's meant to be in romance. And sometimes the most fun ones are, like, the ones where they overcome a lot of obstacles where it's obvious it's not meant to be. Oh, those are the best ones. Yeah. Because those are the ones with the most tension. (laughs) (laughs) But I think another good example of what you're talking about is, like, Kaz and Inej from Six of Crows, where... Do we need a Six of Crows reference jar? I know. Seriously, we talk about it every single week because it's so good. It is so good. It's just a fun book with, you know, romance and stealing stuff. And I don't think you can get better than that. It's a book with a lot of romance and also a tank. Spoilers. It's it's good. (laughs) Anyway, that's a good one because you can see how the two characters, Kaz and Inej, how they fit together and how they, like, temper each other and, and make things better for each other. Maybe Inej more than Kaz. Maybe she just tempers him. (laughs) Well, I've definitely been on a big Jane Austen kick lately. I mean, I'm always on a Jane Austen kick, but it's been heightened lately. And I've always seen her as, you know, the ultimate master of writing romance. And it's always been interesting to me that the characters, um, she makes it very clear that they do complement each other. They're what's called a good match. But then also that romance can be so heightened in a society that has all these rules where they can hardly touch hands without everyone gasping. And so... It seems to me that an important part of romance are the rules set, and then you can play a lot of tension off where you're going to cross those rules and where you're not. I think that's true, for sure. I know we've mentioned on the podcast before that in the Chaos Walking series, the big, huge culmination of the romance is that the characters finally kiss, like, at the end of three books. But I'm totally on board the whole time because of the rules in the society and and what's going on there. Right. And what you guys are talking about is something that I call, and other people online have called, the wall. So the wall is the thing that keeps the characters apart. And the more, the higher, the more impenetrable the wall seems, the more people are going to root for them to be together. So, I mean, in Romeo and Juliet, you know, their families will literally kill each other. That's a huge wall. Sabata here is a really good example of her Ember in the Ashes series. She's very good at constructing walls. And she's very good at drawn out romances because she doesn't maintain the same wall the whole time. She continually, like, they overcome something. You're like, oh, they'll finally be together. Nope, new wall. And it's higher than before. They really can't be together now. And so that's, Mm. she's very good at at things like that. Well, I mean, so what I was going to say earlier is, like, we we talked beforehand. I interrogated all my online friends who, surprisingly, (laughs) they actually read a lot of romance. Um, Reach out, Cameron. That's what the cool kids are doing. (laughs) I know. Well, I thought it was interesting because they're not writers themselves. So it was interesting to, like, piece through their responses and see what they were saying. And it came down to, so the stuff they liked the best was when the wall, they didn't use the word wall, but when, Mm -hmm. when the wall was something out of the ordinary. Right. So not just not just fear of um are they gonna like me or not, but taking it to something weird. Like And right. not if we just sat down and talked to each other, this would be fixed. Exactly. Oh yeah. The misunderstanding as the wall is no no good. Nobody do that. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that. And I read so much romance and it's um don't do that. Which but- is as I say not to say that you can't have like emotional state be an interesting wall. I can't I can never remember her name. Nina? Yes. Their wall, well, I mean, so. Spoilers! Depending on the different parts of the book. <laughs> right. A lot of it is just emotional, but it's legitimate emotional. This is not something you can just talk through. Well, right. They um, have t- real trauma in their past. Yeah, emotional walls, I think, are completely legit. It's the communication where if I just said what I meant when I said that other thing was this other thing that wouldn't actually offend you, like, that can't be the wall, where it's just, just a misunderstanding. End up hating everyone. Right. Yeah. The Kind of the brilliant thing about romance, the genre that people don't really appreciate, is that these authors have taken the story, the one single story of 
person meets person and gets they get together and they've literally told it in hundreds of thousands <laughs> of different ways and so and in a lot of like in a lot of contemporary romances you can have external walls which are you know oh no there's a war we can't be together i write fantasy so i just always default to war <laughs> but in contemporary romance which i also love and read a lot of oftentimes the walls are internal but they're not going to be things like oh no do you like me they're going to be things like I've been betrayed in the past and I don't trust people and I don't trust myself to know what's good for me or something like that. And then, you know, you pair them with somebody who has been mistrusted in the past. And so not only do you have somebody who doesn't know how to trust, you have somebody who, oh, it hurts me that you don't trust me. And you have to figure out how to get those people over that to get them together. And that's what a lot of like internal walls are doing. So, I mean, it sounds dumb, but if you think of your own past relationships in real life, there are walls. It's big. It's a big <laughs> deal. Well, and I think that that's tying it really well into a character arc because it sounds like a lot of the progress you have to make has to be internal in situations like that. And that's yeah. a character arc. Yes. And so it's, it might be intertwined with somebody else's character arc, but it's also growth just for yes. that specific character. Mm-hmm. Which I think links back really nicely to our earlier discussion that good characters are foundational here because oh, you can't yeah. show legitimate engrossing, uh, men, you know, internal growth if there wasn't an internal to begin with. I have right. actively rooted for one half of a love pair to die. <laughs> so that the, the other half that I liked could just go be with someone who I did like. So, yeah, you have to have good char- If you don't have good characters, nobody cares if they live happily ever after. It's true. Actually, this is kind of funny and maybe a little bit telling about me. I have mentioned several times on the podcast that I listen to TV shows while I do the dishes. Mm-hmm. And um, lately I was listening to New Girl, which I, I actually really don't care for at all. I just spent <laughs> all of my time doing the dishes just waiting to see if the two characters who had been, it been promised pretty much throughout that they're going to get together. I just wanted to see it happen. Like, that's all I wanted. And when it happened, I stopped watching that one. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't say that they're bad characters or anything. I just, I think that that draw of watching characters overcome and finally get together, it's a real thing. Oh, yeah. I've continued to read terrible romances just to see characters get together. (laughs) Yep. And I mean, and you do know they're going to get together, but how do they get together? Mm -hmm. That's the question that romance, especially the romance genre, asks. (laughs) So maybe we should skip down to actually creating like what you do in your writing to create tension. We talked about the wall and how um, if you have something that will inherently keep your characters apart, that creates tension. So what are the other things that you can do in order to create tension or to like ramp it up throughout a book? So I've got a couple of things and they're both, I guess I call them both cycles because you have to do it several times or you have to just keep doing it to really... That's just how it works. So um, the first thing I have, I can, I call it the attraction cycle. I'm not married to the name, but it's really simple. It's that this is how you kind of uh, show that your characters have interest in each other. They see, they observe the love interest. They're super aware of the love interest. And, and that's the first step. Just like, I'm aware of this person. And then they have a physical or emotional reaction to whatever their love interest is doing. So it's like, oh, he's standing close to me and he touched my arm and it was his hand is warm or something like that. And I like it. (laughs) And then you just and I don't like that. I like it depending (laughs) on. Right. And I don't and I hate that I like it. That's very basically what it's built on. Do do you like that you hate that you like it? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) 
Yes, they do, but they won't admit it to themselves. Okay, can you guys think of any examples of this happening in a book that you just felt like it was done well? Howl's Moving Castle is an excellent one, because they don't really confess that they love each other till the end. But all the way throughout, you can tell they're just wild for each other. I love that book just because of all of the ridiculous things that they do in order to both annoy and also be in each other's presence. It's great. <laughs> I think there are some YA authors who are really, really good at this. I can't think of any, like, I can't quote their books off the top of my head. Um, but I've named Sabata here. Uh, Lainey Taylor. I mean, if you're looking for just romance-saturated young adult fantasy novels, Lainey Taylor, Cassandra Clare, Libba Bray. I don't think hers are quite as like, oh, I'm physically aware of you, but the romance in them is still very good. I really like her Diviner series, which is kind of like a horror-y, um, horror-y <laughs> <laughs> um, series that's set in the 1920s. Erin Beattie's books that they're still coming out right now, but the first one's called The Trader's Kiss, and the second one that's coming out soon is Trader's Ruin. She's been a guest on the podcast before. Do we want to talk about your degrees of escalating things here? Yeah, I, I mean, we can just run through them really quick. I think that this is a useful tool so that, you know, especially for people who write cleaner romance, these are degrees of phys physical intimacy that there's an author named Jenny Hansen, who's a romance author, and she has a 12-stage list online, but I have just combined some of them because I think it's just simpler. So this, the first one is voice-to-voice, -voice, the, just the characters speak to each other. Uh, the second is eye-to-eye -eye or eye-to-body. They just, they see each other. Stage three is platonic touch. So that's just like if you touch any, like the way you touch any person, like you shake hands or touch someone on the arm, maybe. Flirtatious touch or intimate platonic touch, which is like putting an arm around somebody, putting an arm around their waist, touching the small of their back. We do often touch our friends this way, but generally only the ones we're close with. And this is also a great stage because you can use it to confuse your characters and they not know what's going on. Romantic touch. If you touch somebody on the face or the neck, because you usually only do that when you're about to kiss them. Or kill them. Yeah, or kill them, <laughs> or you're punching them. So this is either very... That's there you all. go. Yeah. Cameron likes necromancer books. What can I say? <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> so... <laughs> I'm glad. The only other people whose faces I really touch are like my kids. So like really you got to be very close to somebody to be touching their face. And then there's kissing and then there are two more stages, but that's not PG. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if you know that you want your book to go, if you just want your characters to kiss, they shouldn't be cuddling with each other on page one. I mean, I guess I could definitely see some YA books where that would be happening. But, you know, it's kind of a good if they're just meeting for the first time, it's a, these are good like mile markers say, okay, I, I know that I want them to get to step six. So I'm going to intersperse the rest of these throughout the book, I'm going to space them out. That's that's what that's useful for. I think that's really helpful for me too, as I'm trying to fit a romantic arc into my plot. Because if you look at it in terms of like, what is more and more intimate. It's easy to see like where the characters need to be or rather where they would be in real life, like mm -hmm. how a normal romance moves forward rather than like having them jump straight from I see you and then we're going to kiss on the second page, which, you know, it happens in some books and some people can make <laughs> it work. But for me, I'm a slow mover in romance um, in books. Yeah, I, uh, I'll say I, I'm got engaged to my husband like a week after I met him. And then we got married four months later. So I 
as somebody who's experienced insta love in real life <laughs> um it's you just have to i think authors who want to use that just can't go into it like this is the be all and end all they're immediately all the way in love because i can tell you I was not deeply and abidingly in love with my husband when I agreed to marry him. I just was very attracted to him and he seemed to have the kind of personality that I would like in my life long term. And that maybe seems like I'm putting it too lightly, I guess. But you have to look at it as this. It can still grow. It's not deep love at that point. And I think so if you're going to start with that, you need to show your characters growing from that really what is just infatuation into a deep love. I think I'd just like to add to that. I feel like when insta-love becomes a plot point mm-hmm. is when I have a hard time with it. And right. so if I don't see the signposts that people actually care enough for each other to give other things up, like I want to see the combining of their lives, I guess, and like showing that they're important to each other before they like, you know, give up the entire world for the other person. Would it be a point to discuss that even if you're, even if you're dealing with characters who are instantly in love, that doesn't necessarily mean they know how to be in love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. A good point. Right. So how do you show that your characters are attractive to each other instead of telling your reader? Well, I think it's important for the readers to get those cues that this could possibly happen by how much screen time the romantic interest gets, especially if we're in a close a point of view with someone like close third and just the way their voice shapes their perspective of the remote romantic interest. They don't have to confess feelings or anything. I mean, often they don't acknowledge those feelings, but they kind of are drawn to them and the romantic interest gets more time and more attention than others. Which kind of goes along with what you were talking about earlier, Caitlin, Mm -hmm. where we have the voice to voice and then the characters start noticing each other more and more. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's reflective of real life. I don't know how you guys are, but when I was, you know, when I would have a crush on somebody when I was especially younger, and I mean, we talk so much about YA you think about them a lot. It's what's the difference between love and obsession? When you're a teenager, it's a very fine line. (laughs) I think in novels, a lot of times it's like, oh, I, I like, like people, the characters are like, I, I won't acknowledge that I like this person or they'll realize that they're in love. Okay. I've never realized I'm in love. If I like somebody, I know that I like them. I've never been interested in somebody and then woke up one morning or had somebody say something like profound to me and been like, I am in love. (laughs) We know when we're in love. And so I just think it's interesting that novels portray, especially YA novels, portray it as something you don't realize is happening to you. Maybe that's other people's experience. It just hasn't been mine. Maybe I'm just very in contact with my emotions. (laughs) And I, I mean, as far as like showing and not showing that they're interested in each other, to go along with them realizing it, I think it's okay for them to just be like, I like this person, but then there are other things that are keeping them apart. Mm. So I don't really think there's anything too wrong with that. Something else I wanted to mention is like all of that noticing and touching and escalating, whatever. I feel like people use all the same things over and over again. Like you have the heart beating in the chest and like holding breaths Mm -hmm. and I don't know, I, I just vary your language, I guess, is something that I would say like, There's more than one way to show that somebody's nervous or somebody's interested or somebody's paying attention Mm -hmm. and like use somebody's whole body, like where their head is turned, where their feet are, how they're holding themselves. I would say, and ideally you come up with something that ties in directly to who the person is as a character. Yeah. All right. So I'm dropping another dollar in the six of crows jar, but, (laughs) (laughs) but I think one of, one of the interesting dynamics between an edge and Kaz is that Kaz wants to touch an edge, but he has this. Is phobia a strong enough word? He 
can't deal with touching anyone. So every time they're close together physically, and it's from his point of view that's playing in his head, and it colors the situation so that it's different from any other time you'd read, are they going to hold hands? (laughs) (laughs) Right, and that's what really sets apart the the well-done romance from the not-so-well-done romances, is the reliance on cliche language, I think, a lot, and deep characterization. Which I think bleeds over into just general writing craft and technique. For sure. So I had another method, I guess. I just want to make sure that it's there because I really feel like this is the heart and soul of writing both romantic and sexual tension, which I would categorize as two different things. Romantic being emotional and sexual being physical, obviously. I call it the cycle of almosts. And it's the first step is that the characters desire each other and or have a small taste of what they could have together, like a touch, a kiss, or just a genuine emotional connection. Their resistance to the romance decreases, and so then their desire for each other increases, and that's step one. Step two is that for some reason, whether through interruption or through the character's own resistance, the moment that they're having together is left unfulfilled, so they don't quite kiss. They their, their connection is broken. The reader experiences then through the point of view character how the interrupted moment has left that character unfulfilled, upset, or unsettled. Or, I mean, maybe floating on air or whatever, if it's, you know, if it's a moment that they were happy to get. This is really important because it deepens the character and the reader's connection to the character. And then you repeat that, increasing the moments in magnitude as the book goes on. So if the, in the first chapter, they get interrupted looking at each other intensely, which happens. Maybe at the midpoint, then they're interrupted. You know, they almost kiss, but then they don't quite get to. And then maybe right before the world ends, you know, you've got a declaration of love that's interrupted. Or, and this is the the last point I wanted to make, or maybe it isn't, because the thing about tension is you can go too far. So sometimes we have to release the pressure because constant buildup just leads to frustration and books being thrown across the room. Say if you follow these steps and then one out of every few times, the characters do touch or kiss or connect without interruption. And I think that's really what's going to get your readers hooked is the appropriate balance of those things. Okay, so we probably need to move on. So a quick review of how we review things. We try not to be prescriptive, but I guess we're going to try and let our guests be more prescriptive because they're all fancy and cool and know what they're talking about. So if you'd like to check out the text of this submission and see all of our notes, you can check it out on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. The submission we got for this week is about a governess who is pressed into acting as one of her charge's lady companion at a an upcoming party, though she doesn't feel she is suitable and does not want to. So some things that we liked about this. I think we get a glimpse into an interesting family dynamic, but it's not typical. I liked the hint that the lady of the house, this is her second marriage, and she has just recently entered into it. So there's going to be some tension there between her and her new husband and trying to put together a blended family. I thought that was a very interesting starting point. I like how how our main character is in an awkward position, being made increasingly awkward by sort of the general incompetence of her employer. But I like that she's aware of what's going on. And because then for me, I like that because it means going forward, I can expect that she's going to pick up on stuff and be able to make active choices rather than just having awkwardness happen to her. I actually like that dynamic a lot too, where it's obvious that this person she's employed by does not understand why she wouldn't want to be a lady's companion or whatever else. She just assumes that whatever it is she asks her to do is right. I also like the glimpse of the family dynamic. 
I really loved the detail that was put into the setting on the first and second page because, I mean, I'm from somewhere that's much rainier than here. I'm from back in the Midwest. And um, so for me, like when she says like there was like damp stone and a rose garden. And so for me, like that immediately evokes a lot for me because where I'm from, you know, I know what like, I mean, everybody knows it, but I know what damp stone smells like, and I know what it's like to be in a garden on a rainy day. And so I thought that that was really vivid and nice. And I really liked that she used scent at least twice. I really liked some of the character moments that came up. Um, in one instance, the daughter, Lucy, who she's supposed to be chaperoning, comes into the room and is super excited because she gets to find out or she finds out that she's going to this exciting party and that she gets new dresses and she says oh i'm so happy i'll never ask for anything ever again and then immediately asks for a new fan Mm -hmm. so i thought that was a really good character moment for her another moment i liked and this is another characterization of lady spencer she tells anna the main character that she wants her to chaperone um, her daughter at this party unless any exciting young men come up and then to leave her alone and so anna points out that she won't be able to chaperone if she leaves when the young men appear Okay, so then let's move on to things that might need a second look. One of the things that I felt like missed a little bit for me in this chapter is there were some critical details that were left out. There's a lot of showing and a lot of dialogue, and that is so great to see because people usually go in the other direction where it's all telling. But I kind of missed some of the telling. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I got to the end of the first chapter, and I don't know how old the other charge is. I don't really know how this governess ended up in the situation. I don't... Like, there's, I don't understand the dynamic between the husband and the wife that she's employed by. There's just a lot that was left. Because so much of the conflict in this scene is social in nature, it feels like it would the conflict would benefit if we understood more of the social positions of everyone involved. Yeah, we definitely need to know. I mean, if the if the mother, if Lady, Lady Spencer is lower in birth than her husband, and she's kind of been elevated by this marriage, then we need to, we do need to know that. We got zero, literally <laughs> zero physical description of any person. And I think physical description can be so telling. And it's such a, you know, and it is a good showing. I mean, it's telling when you're showing what they look like and what they're doing. And so I would have really liked a lot more of that. I mean, you have a viewpoint character and the way that they see everybody else tells you a whole lot about them. Right. Mm -hmm. So, Well, and I wonder if this author may have heard like, your character can only notice what they would notice. I honestly think that that's that's too, that's rough. When you're starting out, you're writing a first chapter, just tell us what's there. Just, it's okay. We need background. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and it's tricky finding that balance and that's something that as you continue to write and revise and have other people read for you, I mean, it's just something that's tricky to balance. So yeah. One of the things that I felt like most needed physical description is we find out by the end of the submission that the main character that we're talking about is Indian, which in that time and place is kind of a big deal. Or she's at least half. Or something. Yeah. Which the fact that we don't know is kind of a problem. Yeah. Because it sounds like it's going to be the main conflict. I picked up at the beginning that she loved India, but I agreed that that I didn't realize that she was um, natively Mm -hmm. Indian until the end. Just because in my limited knowledge of ancient things... I remember at some point that there were rich people who went over and lived in India for fun, but they... Oh, Britain took over India. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's are still anger. That's a yeah. recent change back to India not being... Yeah. Mm-hmm. So at first I had assumed that she was just maybe a daughter of someone rich who had gone over there and lived for fun. 
I had that same. Thought. Well, she could have been, which is we don't know. She could. That's what I had assumed too, is that she had just lived in India mm-hmm. because her name is also a very English name, right? So, which might be in keeping with the way things are, but because we're reading and we can't see people, we just need clues. Yeah, we need to know what's going mm-hmm. on. Cameron, you wanted to say something? Well, so I might say something that's a little on the dangerous side. Danger. What do you guys think about the idea that? When you're writing the very beginning of a book, you're there's like certain rules you're allowed to break that you wouldn't necessarily tolerate later on. I absolutely agree with that. The, the beginning of books, they have to be so information heavy just because there's such a learning curve. You have to bring the reader into your world. And you can't do that by literally showing them. You can't because we don't see it. It's not a movie. You're not there. So I, I, I say even movies, movies can struggle pretty Heavily too, oh, yeah. To do that, mm-hmm. so. My first impression from Lady Spencer being all weird about the chaperoning stuff was that the reason she didn't want to chaperone her daughter is because she was looking for a husband at this party <laughs> and so that she was going to be occupied otherwise. But that became quickly not the case because she's married. And so that was just another one of those details that would have been fixed if we just knew what was going on. I know that Lady Spencer was the second wife, but I couldn't tell if she was Lucy's mother or not because Lucy called her mama. And yet Lady Spencer was very nervous about being with these society people alone. But if she's Lucy's mother, then Lucy to be coming up on an age where she would have a season where she'd be. I don't know if they did presenting in 1837, which is when this chapter takes place. But I don't know if they presented them, them to Queen Victoria yet, because 1837 is literally the, the beginning of the Victorian age. She would be 18 years old. And so to for Lady Spencer to be her mother she would have to be living in this world for 18 years. So why does she need a governess to tell her what to do? Because she would have had more time than her daughter to practice. And then if she is her stepmother, this time in history is a little, you know, lots of old men were marrying very young women. And so if she is Lucy's stepmother, then she's probably, then she, I would, I had assumed she would be quite young, like maybe in her early to mid twenties, or maybe she could have even been Lucy's age. Mm -hmm. And so why is Lucy calling her mama? So I was a little confused there. I didn't quite get the relationship. Let's say, so this is just coming from the semester class I took on British literature during the Victorian period. But the impression I got is that everything in society at this point is extremely based on nuance. So the, so the very, the very small details of who married who and what their background was before that and what their parents' background was before that and their parents' parents and all of that factors in so heavily to every single social interaction that it feels like at least if you're going to go for a really historically grounded piece that we there just there just needs to be more of those details because that's realistically what the people would be thinking about. Well, anytime you're writing historical anything, you want to be as correct as you can. So just research is very important. Right. And just really quick along those lines too, Anna calls Lady Spencer ma'am. That's an address that would only be used for royalty. Ma'am or madam is what they call like the queen. They wouldn't have called and her husband they say is his name is his title is Sir. So he's probably like country gentry or something like that. So Anna should be calling her my lady, Lady Spencer, or even maybe your ladyship. The other thing that I noticed was that there just seemed to be a lot of sentences that started with she, um, and a lot of them were very short and informational, and so it just made the prose seem kind of choppy. So maybe look at sentence variation a little bit. And Cameron Which has goes into my my classic <laughs> <laughs> avoiding to be constructions which in this case since it's past tense would be using the word was i think it's the third paragraph it uses the word twice and i know i get it some people don't care about this but for me i'm going to point it out every time i see it so just deal with it <laughs> because if you're using the, the the verb was you are being as imprecise as you could possibly be 
and still saying thing. they're doing something. So that's not to say you can always come up with an alternative. I, I think that there's a, ti- a you can, time and a place for is and was. Yes. You can be too fancy. But I think, I think you can definitely avoid using it three times on the same page. Sure. All right, rant done. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with what has been said. Um, I really enjoyed the submission, and I'm, I'm grateful for the chance I got to read it. Awesome. <laughs> okay. So, in conclusion, I guess, remember that if you'd like to submit your first chapter for us to critique, you can check out our website for details on how to do that. So, once again, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like to see what we look like and all of the funny faces we make while we are talking to each other and all the things that we say we're going to cut out of the podcast, you can watch us live stream our episodes. We're not doing that this week, but next week we will be live and crossing fingers, Ben Grange will be on with us. So if you would like a critique from a current agent, you can submit for this week. It depends on him because he just had a new baby and his wife is in charge of whether or not he gets to come on. Uh, if you want to actually talk to us, you can find us on Twitter at Lit Service or on Facebook and Instagram is at Lit Service Podcast. We hope you will come check out our forum where you can find other querying authors and you can find critique partners there. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a star rating and a review on whichever podcast app you use. It helps other people to find the show. For Lit Service, thanks for listening and we will see you in two weeks. <laughs>